So how much are you worth? How much are you worth? If somebody was going to pay a ransom for you, pay a cost for you, rescue you from a kidnapping situation, how much are you worth? Some of us have have grown up in homes where we've had parents that tell us, you're not worth anything. I wish you were never born. You can't do anything right. How could you be so stupid? And you're raised and, and grown up to feel worthless. Today, all across Canada and the United States, there are young children, as young as six years of age, if you can believe it, who are committing suicide because they're being bullied, because they feel unloved, because they feel that they're worthless. So how much are you worth? I mean, you could look in any Fortune 500 magazine or look in any tabloid magazine, and you can see uh, CEOs of billion-dollar companies. Famous athletes and celebrities, politicians, they're worth billions, right? We pay them billions of dollars to entertain us. You have uh, certain celebrities and politicians that will have an army of bodyguards surrounding them, and they're packing heat. They are paid to take a bullet for the person they're guarding. So how much are you worth? Do you know anybody that would jump in front of a bus for you? There might be a few people here who kind of get that concept. If anybody's been in the military or if anybody's been in wartime, maybe you had a buddy that sacrificed his life for you. I've heard stories of grenades being lobbed into foxholes. And a guy, without thinking, who has family and kids back home, jumps on the grenade, sacrifices himself in order that his buddies, his platoon, can live. And they can go home to their families. Do you know somebody who would jump in front of a bus for you, take a bullet for you? But that's exactly what somebody did for you. And I'm going to introduce you to that person today. Have you ever been so stressed out because you're dreading maybe a doctor's appointment or maybe a surgery coming up? Or maybe you even have a court date. Or perhaps you're behind on a bill and they're getting ready to shut the power off and you just get this sick feeling in your stomach. Maybe you have to stand before a judge or or police officers or something like that and you just get these butterflies in your stomach and you're about to make yourself sick. You just feel like going to the bathroom and tossing all your cookies. Have you ever been so stressed out where you're sick to your stomach? So stressed out that that you can't breathe. You're starting to hyperventilate. So stressed out. You can feel the heartbeat in your head and in your ears. Thump, 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 thump. Have you ever been that stressed out? Well, our Lord was that stressed out and much more. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 22. Have you ever been so stressed or under so much pressure? That you started sweating because you were so nervous. But have you ever gotten to the point where you actually sweated blood? I haven't. A lot of people say, oh, that's just a made-up thing. No, it's an actual medical condition. In Luke chapter 22, this is right after the Last Supper. Or we could call it the Last Seder, the Last Passover. We're getting ready to have Passover on Good Friday, right after the Good Friday service in the gymnasium. If you ever want to experience 
what the Last Supper was like for Jesus and his disciples, I urge you to come. Because the Passover Seder has been relatively unchanged for 2,000 years, it would be very close to what Jesus and his disciples experienced. As you can see today, I'm not dressed in a suit and tie. I'm dressed as, uh, in a manner that Jesus would have likely worn. This, I, I may not have the nice locks that Jesus did, but uh, I've got the beard, right? But this is something similar to what Jesus would have worn in his day. So this is right after the Last Supper, the last meal that Jesus would have on this earth with his 12 closest friends, these students who became like brothers, like family to him. And they went to the garden to pray. So in Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 39, it says, He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. That was one of Jesus' favorite places to pray. My favorite place is Ralston Lake. I love getting on my jogging shoes and going out and walking the trail and just talking with the Lord. Walking and talking with the Lord. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he reached the place, he told them, and I'm sure he probably said it with a quiver in his voice. He probably said it with a lot of anxiety and a lot of trepidation. He told his disciples, he says, pray, pray that you not fall into temptation. And they're probably thinking to themselves, Lord, what, what's the deal with that? What, what, why are you so anxious? Why, why all this trepidation? We just had a great Passover Seder. But he says, pray that you don't fall into temptation. Then he, Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, knelt down, and began to pray. And I'm sure when he knelt down, he probably collapsed. And maybe near a rock or a stone, he leaned himself up against, and he prayed, Father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was God in the flesh, true. But he was still 100% human. He felt pain just as, 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 as much as we do. He knew what he was about to face. And he wasn't looking forward to it. None of us are looking forward to pain. We try to stay away from pain as much as possible. There's a whole industry out there dedicated to pain medications to keep us from feeling pain. When it comes to emotional pain, a lot of people hit the bottle, so they'll just numb themselves to any feeling so that they won't feel pain. And Jesus was about to experience the most agonizing pain anybody could ever experience on this planet. And he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this. But he submitted himself to God, and he said, nevertheless, even though I don't want to go through this, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus knew that there was no other way. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in anguish, he prayed more fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Oh, well, that's just Luke being all poetic. No, I beg to differ. Did you know that Luke was a doctor in his day? Luke was a physician. 
So he knew about all these different medical conditions, and he knew how best to describe what Jesus was going through. There's a condition called hematohydrosis. Hema meaning blood, hydrosis meaning water. Basically, it means to sweat blood. We all have sweat glands, and around our sweat glands are minuscule little blood vessels. Whenever somebody experiences great uh, emotional stress and physical stress and strain, these little tiny blood vessels around the sweat glands will bust, and that blood will seep into the sweat glands. And when somebody begins to uh, sweat and profusely sweat, they will literally sweat blood. Our Messiah was so stressed out that he popped these blood vessels in his head and he started sweating blood as he prayed. And imagine the emotional stress and strain and the physical strain, how much that took out of him just in that moment. Pouring his heart out to God. You know, some may argue you know, that Jesus was kind of a wimpy guy. They kind of imagine him as one of these uh, skinny Indian gurus that sit in a lotus position and hum all day. But I beg to differ. My Lord, my Messiah, was buff. My Lord, my Messiah, was no skinny beanpole. He was cut. How do you know you weren't there? How can you tell? Because my Bible says that Jesus was a carpenter. Now, a carpenter back in the biblical times is much different than a carpenter today. I mean, Danny Babineau, he's a carpenter, right? But he wouldn't win any Mr. Universe contest. I don't think you'd see him flexing with his shirt off or anything, right? But Jesus, he dealt not just like with wood, but with logs. He was carrying logs when he worked as a carpenter. He was using not these power tools that are so easy to use. He used a planer where he had to plane. And it was a tooth saw that he had to saw with. It was an axe that he had to, you know, bust up the wood with. He, it was physical manual labor. And it wasn't just regulated to wood. Sometimes he had to use stone. He was kind of like a mason as well. So he carried all of these heavy things. Can you imagine how muscular Jesus must have been to work with his father Joseph in the carpentry shop and spending a lot of his days working with wood and with stone, building things? Not only that, he didn't have a car. He didn't own a horse. He walked everywhere he went. So you better believe that my Jesus was muscular. Uh, in high school, I had one of my dad's old army jackets. And on the back, I drew a picture of the crucifixion. And I got teased for it all the time. I said, you really think Jesus looked like that? Because I made him muscular. I said, you better believe it. And there was so much red ink on that, on that drawing. They're like, hey, don't you think you're going a little bit overboard with this? I said, no, it's not gruesome enough. It's not bloody enough. There's no horror film out there that could depict what my Jesus went through. So in Luke... Chapter 22, beginning with verse 47. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob, a mob, came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus and kissed him. That seems a little bit odd, but a kiss was very similar to a handshake. 
And especially if it was a well-respected leader or teacher, you would kiss them on the cheek to show reverence and respect and love for that person. So Judas, uh, one of the twelve leading them, he came near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Something that's supposed to be friendly, compassionate, loving, intimate, and peaceful. And you're turning it around? I'm not going to ask a show of hands, but, you know, there's probably some people that are divorced in this congregation today. Some of you, unfortunately, may have walked in on your spouse committing adultery. Or somehow you found out that they betrayed you. Have you ever been betrayed by a lover or a close friend? It's like somebody just punched you in the gut. Oh, you literally feel pain in your heart when you're betrayed. There is a physical reaction when somebody betrays you. Your heart, you can almost hear your heart breaking. The sickness that rises up in your gut. One of your closest friends turns on you, throws you under the bus, and betrays you. It wasn't just physical pain that Jesus went through. It was mental and emotional anguish. He was was rejected and he was betrayed by everybody. There's not one person that stood by him. When they were all threatened to be arrested, all the disciples left. One account says that one of them left so quickly that he left his robe behind and went naked. I know we, 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 we give Peter a hard time. Because he betrayed Jesus, he denied that he knew him. But at least he had the guts to follow him into the court. So he was betrayed. He was left alone. He had nobody to to carry on with him during this trial. Moving on to verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the temple police, and the elders who had come, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day I was with you in the temple, and you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Now, whenever you hear the word mob, you don't think of people holding hands and going, kumbaya. When there's a mob, it's never peaceful. And I don't think that they were too friendly with Jesus. Jesus had no weapons on him. None. And yet I bet you they roughed him up. They grabbed him by the shirt and jerked him around. Probably pushed him. Probably slapped him in the face and upside the head. You're coming with us. Roughly grabbing him. I know we've all seen police cam footage of police brutality. And this is probably what went on. They probably weren't too nice to him. Probably pushing him to the ground, tripping him, putting his hands, tying him tightly to restrain him as if he needed restraint, as if he was going to fight back. They came with with swords and, and, and clubs and sticks, and they didn't need any of that. He would have went with them willingly. So he was roughed up. Now jumping to verses 30, uh, 63. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking him and beating him. Mocking. 
I know we're all grown-ups, we're all adults here, but you remember how it was when you were a little kid? Maybe you just got your first set of glasses. Ha ha, four eyes, four eyes. Or maybe you didn't have the latest fashion. Well, look what he's wearing. And getting made fun of in school. Maybe because you were too short or too skinny or too fat. Or you weren't good at sports. Oh yeah, the jocks had it in for me. Because I, I, I wasn't athletic in any stretch of the imagination. And it hurt being made fun of. Even as an adult, it still hurts when somebody rejects you and makes fun of you. And this is exactly what they did to Jesus. They began mocking him and beating him. We're not, not, we're not just talking a few slaps. The Greek is related to the word pugilism, which means striking someone with a closed fist. I've been hit with 12-ounce gloves. And that's a lot of padding. And that hurts. Could you imagine being hit with a closed fist across the face? Not only that, Jesus never seen it coming. It says they blindfolded him. And could you imagine? He couldn't see. And he never knew when it was going to come. Ugh. Couldn't keep his balance. Falling on the ground, they would pick him back up and hit him again. He didn't know if it was going to be in the face. He didn't know if it was going to be in the gut. He didn't know if it was going to be in the groin. Yeah, I'm sure they went there. Can you imagine that? We are so numb as a church to what Jesus went through. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. We could all say it. And we all say Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And we never think about it. We never go into the gory, gruesome details of what Jesus went through. And it says they mocked him and they beat him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things. I bet you bastard wasn't off the table for them. Because it was already a rumor that he was conceived through illegitimate means. Let's turn quickly to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 26. And they released Barabbas. Do you know what the name Barabbas means? It comes from the two, two Hebrew words bar Abba. Bar meaning son, Abba meaning the father. Barabbas was called the son of the father. He was a counterfeit Messiah. He was a revolutionary, a zealot. He wanted to slit the throat of every Roman soldier and kick Caesar off the throne. And he wanted to rule Jerusalem himself. He proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, the anointed of God. He was the false Messiah. And they released the false Messiah, the Barabbas. Bar Abba, son of the father, but there's only one son of the father, and that's Yeshua, which means God is my salvation. Yeshua, Bar Abba. Yeshua, God's salvation, son of the father. And then they released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged. This is a replica that I made. It's called the Cat of Nine Tails. And this is one of the most diabolical instruments of torture that the human mind has ever devised. 
On these leather straps were tied bits of bone, bits of porcelain, bits of metal. So when they say that Jesus was flogged, they're really glossing over what happened. There was a column that they tied Jesus up to and stretched him until he was on his tiptoes. His back was tight and taut because he was stretched and his feet could barely touch the ground. And after they realized that his his back was nice and tight, then the Roman centurion took relish in what he was about to do. 39 lashes with this thing. 39. Because according to the Torah, you were only allowed to beat somebody with 40 lashes. And the only reason they did 39 is just in case the guy miscounted. You didn't want to break the law and go over. Jesus couldn't see it coming. His back was taut and tight as he was hanging by his tiptoes. And that Roman soldier, just imagine being in a foreign country, ruling over people that you hate, that don't even want you there. You miss your family. You want to go home. And this is your chance to take out all your frustration on the very people you hate. And they took that and they beat Jesus' back with it. And when that whip came around, it wrapped around his ribs and around his sides. And the bone and the metal and the porcelain bit into his flesh. And when they got it, they gave a good tug and just pulled it. And chunks of flesh came off of Messiah's ribs and his back. His back and his legs, all, all his back and legs and his ribs were reduced to raw hamburger meat. You might as well take a cheese grater to Jesus' back. People are saying that my Messiah is a wimp. I beg to differ. Most men didn't even survive the flogging. Most people died during the scourging. Because it would be so horrendous and so deep that the chunks of flesh that would come up, it was just the, it was the, the top part of the skin, the muscle, and it would work its way down to the bone. Sometimes men would have their organs that would spill out of their sides because it ripped them open so badly. 39 times that Jesus had this. Do you mind passing this around? Just letting everybody... And as you hold that scourge, just imagine what Jesus went through for you. How he was scourged. Isaiah 52 verse 14 was a prophecy about the suffering of Messiah. Basically it says that the Messiah would be marred beyond human recognition. He would be beat and tortured so badly he wouldn't even resemble a human being anymore. And the beating that he took before that, could you imagine? Have you ever seen somebody that was beaten with brass knuckles or just a closed fist? His eyes were probably swelled shut. He probably could barely see. His lips were swollen and burst and turned inside out. And he was probably cut above his eyebrow. If you've ever watched MMA, these guys have like small gloves on, but gloves nonetheless. And sometimes they get hit and they'll cut right above the eye. It'll split it wide open. And the blood will just gush into the eye to where the opponent can't see, and they have to stop the fight. Could you imagine Jesus was probably beaten where his face was swollen, his eyes were puffy, his eyes were bruised and turned black, and his lips were turned inside out, cracked and bleeding. He probably hadn't had anything to drink for hours. And on top of his face being marred, 
and his back shredded, his legs shredded. He didn't even resemble a human being any longer. And after that, guess what they did? He's bleeding profusely from the back, probably showing muscle and bone. And they put his robe on him. And they sent him away to be judged. And could you imagine, have you ever like taken a bed sheet and it's wet and you wrapped a wet bed sheet around you? What does it do? It sticks to you. It clings to you. And imagine, imagine the blood that was on his robe that he had on his back and it clung to his flesh. And it probably had time to congeal. It probably had time to dry a little bit. And so the cloth, the clothing was stuck to Jesus' back. So Matthew 27, verse 27. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They stripped him. After the wounds from the scourging had time to scab over and the, the cloth, the robe, had a chance to cling to Jesus' back, they ripped it off of him again and opened up every single one of those wounds and caused him to bleed profusely all over again. I'm surprised that Jesus was even standing at that point with the massive loss of blood, the dehydration, the weakness. He was probably swaying and staggering like a drunk. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted. They twisted a crown of thorns. We're not talking about rose briars. We're talking about one to two inch thorns that were as tough as nails. I can't hand this to you because I don't want you to get poked. But I did give a, I, I put some on a card as a little example. If you could pass those around. And just think about just think about the crown of thorns they put on Jesus' head. If anybody knows anything about anatomy, if you get cut on the head, you're going to bleed like a stuck pig. You have a lot of tiny blood vessels, and your, your skin is very thin on your scalp. And if you get cut on your scalp, if you've ever seen a fight, and somebody gets cut on a scalp, boy, you would think it, there was a murder taking place. Because the blood would just gush down the face, into the eyes, into the nose and mouth and beard. And it would poke through his scalp and scrape his skull. And you know how tender the head is. And they just pushed that crown of thorns, mocking his kingship. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. Could you imagine the mockery? You know, like, like uh, 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 the hunchback of Notre Dame. They mocked him. They dressed him up as a king and made him look like a fool. And could you imagine Jesus being, not being able to see, breathing heavily, still bleeding, with the crown of thorns on his head and this staff in his hand. And they're mocking him, making fun of him. And they're saying, oh, hail, Ooh, hail, king of the Jews. They spat on him. Not just spit. Yeah, gross, right? I'm sure that's what they did. It wasn't nice. And they spit on him. They spat on him and they took the staff in his hand. And they hit him on the head with it. 
Have you ever been hit on the head with like, like, you know, you're playing baseball or something and you get a little too close to the batter and you get hit on the head, maybe on accident or somebody hits you on the head by accident? That hurts. And could you imagine these Roman soldiers, these Roman soldiers that were born killers, that were trained to kill, they were killing machines, they had no feeling, no empathy, they certainly didn't care for some stinking Jew. Could you imagine? Batter up! They probably swung as hard as they could to hit Jesus on the head with the staff they put in his hand to mock him with. I'm surprised that he, he, he remained conscious. I'm surprised that Jesus didn't lose consciousness. And after they had mocked him, they had stripped him of his robe, there again, opening up all those wounds all over again. And put on his robe, or put on his clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. And you thought the crucifixion part was bad. What happened before that was, was, was horrible. Now, verse 32. Verse 32, as they were going out, they found a Cyrene man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. Thank you, Brother Lynn, for bringing this. In an already weakened state, his back and his legs and his body reduced to raw hamburger meat, his face bloody and swollen and bruised, his head just punctured with so many crown of thorn holes, dehydrated. And by this time, he had been up for almost 36 hours. He had been awake over a day. I can't function if I'm up for more than 24 hours. And it said that he, that he carried it. John said, John 19 says that he carried it part way. And then he, he was probably and collapsed under the weight. And the Roman soldier said, you, get over here. Help this guy carry his cross. And Simon of Cyrene, a black man, lovingly took that cross from Jesus' shoulder and carried it the rest of the way for my Lord. And it wasn't a nice finished piece of wood with his shoulders raw from the scourging. Could you imagine that piece of wood and all the splinters going into all the little nerve endings on his back? And with the weight of that, how, how that must have felt. This crossbeam could weigh anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. I can't even squat 125 pounds, and I go to the gym pretty regularly. And I can't imagine in a weakened state, dehydrated, bloodied, carrying a 125-pound crossbeam. <laughs> My Lord was a wimp? I don't think so. He was a man of man's. So it says, they forced him to carry the cross, and they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. That's never good. Skulls represent death. You didn't go there to have a party. You went there to die. They gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. Guess what? This wine was a sedative. It was, it was to help the victim 
to dull and numb the pain so he wouldn't feel the pain of the crucifixion. And Jesus refused it. He did not want any painkillers. He wanted to feel every lash, every beating. He wanted to feel every single punishment that he took for you. That's how much you're worth. You're worth somebody going through torture for you. Because I deserved that beating. You deserved that beating. We all deserved that beating. And Jesus took it for me. And he refused that wine mixed with gall. Because he wanted to feel the extremity of the bitter dregs of this cup that he had to drink. That he prayed, Lord, if it be your will, take it from me. But nonetheless, may your will be done. And once they laid him down, they shoved him down on that cross. They stretched his arms out as far as they would go. And according to Rome, your hand included your wrist. Jesus wasn't nailed here because if he was, it would rip right out and he would fall off the cross. So guess what? They nailed him right there. They put it right between the ulna and the radius. And could you imagine as they stretched his arms out on that cross and they took that mallet and they just put that into his hand? Could you imagine that metal, that rusty, rough metal going through, through, through blood vessels, going through muscle and sinew and tendons and the burning, searing pain that he would have felt? I've been told that when you nail somebody there, that it, it creates, it pinches and creates pressure on a nerve and causes the thumb to fold in on itself. Have you ever got a foot cramp where you felt like your foot was folding in on itself? You know how painful that was? That's what Jesus felt on top of just being pierced with, with a nail. Here, put, put one on one side and one on the other. Would you mind passing this on this side? And after they crucified him, so they nailed his hands. And they had one spike left for his feet. And that, that nail was also a way for Jesus to prop himself up. Because he was stretched out so much, he, he couldn't breathe. He was slumped down and he had to put all his weight and all his pressure on that nail in the foot. Raise him up. Scrape his roll back against the splintery wood of the cross to be able to catch a breath and, and, and slump right back down. And could you imagine as they raised that cross, it probably took several soldiers to raise that cross, and there was a hole dug in the ground for that cross, and boom, and probably, probably ripped every single one of his joints out of socket. Have you ever had a shoulder out of socket? Do you know how painful that is? And imagine what Jesus experienced. And he had to raise himself up every time he wanted to breathe or every time he wanted to speak. And so it says, after crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. They divided this. It was already ripped to shreds anyway. It was a trophy, just like a serial killer will take a tooth or a finger or some morbid trophy to say, yeah, I killed this person. I had power over this person. And they could brag about it to everybody. The Roman soldiers said, hey, this is a pretty famous victim here. 
He's claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And I'm going to get a piece of his clothing and I'm going to tell all my buddies at the bar. And they divided that clothing. But then they came to one piece of clothing and they said, no, 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 it's all one piece. Let's not divide it. Do you know what that was? It was the prayer shawl. Something that Jesus carried with him every single day. He would talk to the Father in this thing. He would grab onto the seat, seat, the fringes, and remember the commandments, and remember our God. And he would pray. He taught in this. He preached in this. The woman with the issue of blood grabbed onto this and was healed. And they said, oh, it's one piece. Let's not tear it. Let's, let's cast lots for it. So John records that they casted lots for this famous prayer shawl because they didn't want to rip it. I know, a lot of, I know a lot of pictures we see like a blue or a red sash. And it looks more like a Greek toga than anything Hebrew. But that's what that sash was that's being depicted in those pictures that you often see of Jesus in the flannel graphs. And it says, above his head there was a charge against him, written, This is Yeshua, the King of the Jews. Written in several different languages, Greek and Latin and Hebrew. It was the Hebrew that got under the crawl of the religious elite. And it wasn't just the fact that it says Jesus, King of the Jews. They said, no, 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 change it and say he claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. Tough noogies. Deal with it. You know why they were so angry? Not just because it said that he was the king of the Jews, but the first letter of each word was the Hebrew letters Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. Do you know what that spells? Yahweh, the name of God, the Hebrew name of God. It was a testimony written by Pilate that this was not only Jesus, king of the Jews, but it was God in the flesh. It was Yahweh manifesting the flesh, dying on the cross to redeem mankind from their sins. And just imagine, and back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. It talks about the two criminals. If it wasn't enough that he was mocked by the religious elite, it wasn't enough that he was mocked by the Roman soldier. And by the way, we watch movies of Jesus dying on the cross, and it's all PG-13. He has a loincloth. But guess what? That's not the way it went down. Our Lord was totally naked on the cross. Naked for everyone to see. His mother was there. His aunts were there. The women that followed him in ministry was there. Could you imagine how humiliating it would be for Jesus to be exposed, his private parts, for his close and intimate friends, and the women to see, as well as the entire crowd of Jerusalem that came to see him executed. But for censorship's sake, he always has a loincloth on the photographs and, and the movies and in the paintings, but he was there naked on the cross. And if that wasn't humiliating enough, he was mocked by the very two criminals that were, that, were, that were nailed to the cross beside him. He was on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. That's a short shift for most people at work. You think a six-hour shift is intolerable sometimes? Brother, probably, you know, you stand at the mill, the droning of the machines... 
the boringness of the pieces coming by. Sometimes six hours seems like 12, doesn't it? Six hours on the cross. So by this time, Jesus would have been awake for over 42 hours, almost two days with no sleep. And Jesus was on the cross. He was still conscious. He was still alive. He said seven things from that cross, and we won't get into that for the sake of time. But you know that whatever Jesus said, those seven words were important because of, the, because of the energy that it took for him to prop himself up on that nail, to be able to get enough air in his lungs in order to say those words. Do you know how Jesus ultimately died? It wasn't from the scourging. It wasn't from the beating. It wasn't from the crown of thorns. He suffocated. Do you know how panicking it is not to be able to catch your breath? I've had, I, ha- I used to have asthma, and I've had an asthma attack so bad I literally thought I was going to die because I was going to suffocate. Because he was stretched out and because his body was beat so badly, his lungs began to fill up with fluid. And every time he stood up to take a breath, he could barely get any air in because his lungs were filling up. He was dying by suffocation. And so when he died... The Roman soldier took a spear. The other criminals were still alive. They wanted to hurry up the process. They didn't want to be there all day. Six hours was enough to enjoy a blood sport. So they broke the other guy's legs so that they couldn't breathe and they would die. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they didn't break any of his bones, as the prophecy predicts. So the Roman soldier, to make sure he was dead, thrust that into his side. It went between his ribs, punctured his lungs. That's where the water came out and punctured his heart. It says that blood and water flowed. You have skeptics that say, oh, he didn't really die on the cross. He was revived because of the coolness of the tomb. He wasn't really dead. This proved he was dead because blood and water flowed. Water came out of his lungs and blood came out of his heart and he died. You are worth that much. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you're worthless, that you don't mean anything, that you're a waste of space and a waste of air. You shouldn't even be on the planet because Jesus died for you. What other deity, what other prophet died for you? Nobody! Why did he die? Why did he have to die? Because we deserve that death. Through Adam and Eve, we sinned. And we created high treason against the king of this universe. And we deserve that punishment. But Jesus stepped in and said, Father, Father, no. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll take their place. And Jesus was able to do it because he was 100% God, which gave him the power and the ability to save us. And he was 100% man all at the same time to be our kinsman redeemer, to have that right because he walked in our skin. And he experienced everything that we did. I think if it's okay with you, we're just going to skip the closing hymn and go straight to the communion. I think that would be very, very appropriate. And 
I pray that this will be the most meaningful communion that you've ever experienced. Could I have my assistants come up, please? What we're about to partake of is a very condensed version of the Passover Seder. It's just the very bone basic elements. So if you're a guest here and don't regularly attend, you're more than welcome to participate and to, to take communion with us. But if you don't feel comfortable, there's no pressure. Just let the elements pass on by you. Nobody will cast any judgment or think anything. But it says in 1 Corinthians 11, 27, and 32. So then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, as if it was a snack or just as if it was just a, I don't know, a religious ritual to check off your list, will be guilty of the sin against the body and the blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself. And as we went through and, and talked about the suffering from the garden to the cross, I pray that you were able to examine yourself and to really understand what Jesus did for you. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. That's a nice way of saying they died. If we uh, were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with this world. The communion bread we use is also symbolic of our Lord. This is called matzah. It's unleavened bread. Leaven represents pride and sin. And our Messiah, our Lord, was sinless. That's why he was able to die on the cross and redeem us, because he never committed one sin. He was unleavened. And if you look at a full piece of matzah, you'll see that it's full of holes and it's got scorch marks. And the prophecy says in Isaiah 53 that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was pierced through for our iniquities. By his chastisement and, and by, by his stripes, we are healed. So this represents the sinless body of our Lord. Luke 22, 14 through 16 says, When the hour came, he reclined at the table. Reclining was a symbol of freedom. They weren't slaves anymore. They were free men. When, they, when the hour came, they reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, Oh, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That last supper was the last time he tasted unleavened bread. It was the very last time on this planet that he tasted the grape juice, the wine. And I'm sure he's been craving it and thirsting for it for over 2,000 years because he's looking so forward for us to have this meal with us again in the world to come, in the kingdom to come. So, Brother Dave, would you ask the blessing over the bread, please? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your nail-pierced hand and your feet, Lord. Thank you for the cross of Calvary, Lord God. Thank you for your precious blood, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we thank you uh, now for our sins that were, have been forgiven. We thank you for the cross of Calvary, Lord God, and our eternal salvation. And Lord, we remember your body that was broken and broken for us, Lord God. 
And Lord, we pray your blessing upon this bread here today. We pray this in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen. as each of you takes that piece of unleavened bread, just remember everything that was spoken here today. What this represents, it's not just a regular piece of bread. It means so much more. The symbolism is so rich and so deep and so profound. May it never become trite. May it never lose its meaning for us as we enter this Passover season. And it says, he took the bread and he gave thanks. And this is what he said. This is the prayer he prayed. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Luke chapter 22, verse 19 says, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread. Luke twenty-two twenty says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for you. What's so special about blood? Leviticus, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That's why blood is so, is so important. Blood for blood, life for life. Brother Ron, would you ask the blessing over the cup? Just pray. And there came a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he said, listen to him. Our Father, this morning we've been taken to the crucifixion like we've never seen the crucifixion before. And oh, the suffering that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ went through on our behalf. Our Father, I 
to say the word thank you seems so little, so, so, doesn't seem to be enough, our Father, but I thank you from the bottom of my heart, Father, for my salvation. I thank you for our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the blood that was shed on the cross on our behalf. We sang this morning, nothing but the blood. And that's so true, Father, nothing but the blood that mm -hmm. can save us. You know, our Father, help us each one here this morning to really examine ourselves before our Lord to see and to understand, Father, and to ask for forgiveness when we fail you. And we fail you so many times. Mm. And we think of the cross, our Father, and we think of him hanging there, and it says that everyone, everyone forsook him. Mm. And oh, our Father, oh, 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 oh. So I just thank you this morning for what you've done on behalf of each one of us here this morning. You know, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a lot of us may have cards in our wallets that say we're a particular blood type. You know, that we might be, even be a blood donor. And you know what? When we donate our blood, a pint of blood, we might be lucky to save maybe two lives with that pint of blood. And it's only the people that are able to receive that particular blood type. But when Jesus shed his blood on that cross, it was a universal blood type. He not only saved one life with that blood he shed, but he saved every single last one of us. He was the ultimate blood donor. Hallelujah. in remembrance of me not to be cool not to be popular not just so somebody else can see you take communion this is this is personal we're all here but yet when you take that cup it's just you and him it's personal says then he took the cup and after he gave thanks and when he gave thanks this is what our Lord said blessed are you O Lord our God King of the universe who brings forth the fruit of the vine 
And Luke 22, 17 said, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. Let us take the cup. Luke 22, 18, for I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He has not tasted the bread or the wine since that moment of the last supper. He's waiting for all of us to come home to be able to have that supper with us. Let us close in prayer. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord uh, look upon you with favor and give you peace. Bashem Yeshua Moshienu in the name of Yeshua our Messiah. Amen. You're dismissed. The Plaster Rock United Baptist Church. Come join us every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Abrahamsdescendants.com, getting back to the first century in a 21st century way.